Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back, everyone, to the New Books Network podcast. My name is Lee Pierce, and I am the host for the channel in language. I use she, they pronouns, and I'm very excited today to welcome Xu Yin Sharon Yam, whose book, Inconvenient Strangers, Transnational Subjects and the Politics of Citizenship, was published in 2019 by The Ohio State University Press. I so enjoyed this book. I cannot wait to share it with the New Books Network audience. Essentially, Inconvenient Strangers um, draws attention to how intersecting networks of power, so particularly like race and ethnicity, gender, social class, how these things marginalize transnational subjects who find themselves outside uh, like the concept of dominant citizenship, which usually privileges familiarity and socioeconomic and racial superiority. Um, it's a study of how neoliberal ideas limit citizenship for marginalized populations in Hong Kong. Yam examines how three transnational groups, mainland Chinese maternal tourists, Southeast Asian migrant domestic workers, and South Asian permanent residents engage with the existing citizenry and gain recognition through circulating of personal narratives. Um, It's a wonderful book. It has some amazing concepts such as deliberative empathy that I'm really excited to dive into. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and hand the mic over to Sharon, who's here today. Hello, Sharon. You there? Hi. Hi, wonderful. Well, I really enjoyed this book so much. I'm excited to talk about it. Would you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself and um, what you love about the book or how it came to be, whatever strikes your fancy? Yeah, so um, I am a newly tenured associate professor at the University of Kentucky writing Ooh. rhetoric and digital studies program. Yeah, so I'm so super excited. Um, uh, so this book came about um, as my dissertation research. But like Lee was saying, it, it focuses on Hong Kong citizenship claims in race. And one reason of that is that I think a lot of us would have the experience that the, our research interest is always inevitably kind of echo our own personal lived experiences. And so I grew up in Hong Kong. Actually, I did not move to the States until I was about 18 years old. <clears throat> and so while I was in Hong Kong... As a kid growing up, partly in colonial times, and then most of it, it's after Hong Kong has already been returned to mainland China, I noticed a lot um, of racial tension that is not really being named um, until perhaps afterwards when Hong Kong people was having a lot more conflict with the mainland Chinese government, kind of culminating to what we all see right now with the pro-democracy protest that has been ongoing in the city for almost a year at this point. And so when I was in graduate school, I was really trying to figure out in what ways can I make use of what I'm learning in rhetorical theory and communication studies and in cultural studies to try to make sense of and understand what I've lived as a kid and continue to experience when I go back to visit my friends and family. And so this book was... um, partly kind of motivated by that desire. And at the same time, as um, and it was an international student, so I was also going through immigration in the U.S. front 
um, mm-hmm. trying to get a student visa, later trying to get permanent residency and green card. And every single time when I go back and forth between Hong Kong and the U.S., there's always this dread and anxiety when I like usually land on either O'Hare or New York airport, like when you have to like go through the, the custom and border patrol, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, oh God, what are they going to condescend to me or something, even though I know I have all the paperwork. And so then I started thinking a lot also about um, the practice of formal citizenship, especially the ways in which states use citizenship laws um, and papers to regulate bodies and also to make people feel particular ways which is why um, I have used a lot of emotion studies or FX studies in this book because I want to highlight the fact that citizenship like, is not just this amorphous theory they would like to talk about in the sense of like, oh, do we fulfill our civic duties or our civil rights in that sense? Sometimes I feel very far away or feel like very just conceptual. But in fact, what I want to highlight in this book is that for folks who are constantly bumping up on the border, both literal and metaphorical border of the state, citizenship is something that's very tangible and very embodied. It's a felt sense that always make you feel uneasy. And so partly the the concept of deliberative empathy is trying to get at effectively, emotionally speaking, how can we make use of feelings as a conceptual framework and a praxis to help undo some of these binaries between aliens and insiders? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I enjoy about the book, and, you know, I think this is a mark of really any any good academic kind of like, this is the kind of stuff that I like to read, is that I I didn't have a, a sort of an insider view on what that's like, right? That anxiety of citizenship where you're never quite in, but you're always not out. You're just sort of mm-hmm. in this liminal space of just always being a little bit concerned. Um, so I thought you really expressed that well in a way that, you know, not that I could understand because obviously it's not an experience that I mm-hmm. typically have to have, but that I, that I really got a window into. I really, I found that part of the book very valuable. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. So I guess I could kind of talk a little bit about the overarching argument and how that ground <laughs> all the different case studies. Yeah. Um, so when I was writing this, and I was, each of these case studies are in my dissertation, and they're ongoing tension. So each chapter focuses on a particular racialized mar- minority group in Hong Kong. And a lot of the times, um, you see mainstream Hong Kongers not really discussing the inclusion of these groups as being a priority. Rather, because Hong Kong and Hong Kongers were really facing its mainland Chinese government, particularly like the ruling Chinese Communist Party, uh, wanting to further control the supposedly semi-autonomous status of Hong Kong. So a lot of Hong Kongers are more focused on that in the sense that a lot of these concerns were eclipsed by uh, the political project to push China back. And so what I was thinking is like, well, okay, so it's so obvious perhaps to us in the U.S. who are like more on the progressive side that, yes, if, uh, for example, the South Asian generations, they have been living in Hong Kong for like three to four generations, it's obvious that they should be included. And it's obvious that perhaps to us that there should be more discussions about 
why and why not were these groups um, not part of the city's imaginary for its people. Um, but the, on the flip side is that if you're in the mainstream Hong Kongers, for you, you would have more pressing concerns, political concerns that are not directly related to including a minority groups. And so for me, the question as a rhetorician is like, okay, so how can I make use of the theory that I understand to solve this dilemma or like to incentivize people into wanting to even begin a conversation about inclusion beyond just the formal citizenship? And so uh, this quest has kind of led me down the path of like, okay, let's me, let me look at the ways in which these groups have already been trying to advocate for themselves, right? And so in each of the chapter, I open by looking at um, the ways in which, so like South Asian, Southeast Asian migrant workers and also mainland Chinese maternal tourists, in what ways have they already began the process of trying to gain inclusion and mainstream recognition? And almost all three, all of these groups, they do it, first of all, by going the formal route, which is like the legally sanctioned route that, okay, I'm just going to take the government to court, right? Or I am going to appeal a particular law that marginalize them socio-politically or economically. But so each chapter, then I demonstrate how all of these cases never really gain enough legal or public traction. So in a way that, for example, the migrant workers when they were at a lower court, they actually won the case in which they will get to have um, permanent residency in Hong Kong, the same kind of treatment as white expats would be are receiving. But then later on, this ruling was an overturned by the highest court. And the public sentiment, in, in fact, there was a big backlash. The public sentiment was more against domestic workers after this court case. And so that means if we kind of look at this in the bigger picture, the court case ultimately didn't really help their case if, if what they want is inclusivity. And so that was kind of my uh, exigence that I want to figure out. And so then I was like, okay, so Hong Kongers are, seems to be touchy, or even not just Hong Kongers, you think about Americans as well. We're usually touchier when you say that the government is trying to like change a law that for us may feel like, oh, it's a blanket statement that will invite everybody who does not think and look like us to become one of us. And so my thought was that, well, can I, in what ways can I sneak this into the public discourse and public sentiments in a way that make it a little bit easier to stomach, which is then I started looking into storytelling. Um, so, Asia Martinez, who is uh, a, a professor at Syracuse right now, but going to University of North, North Texas, just had a book out on Counter Story, which is a similar kind of concept in which um, marginalized, racialized populations make use of stories to counter the dominant narratives about them. Um, but in another way, I'm also thinking it's that, well, you still have to make the mainstream audience care enough to even want to listen to those stories in the first place. And so what is one common place that will connect them to allow them to see their shared interest or shared humanity outside of the very obvious cultural differences that has 
historically being kind of amplified. And so that's why I have、um, focused on at the end the telling of familial stories. So, in particular,、um, in the Hong Kong context, and especially in these three cases, the families have always been evoked, sometimes as a trope、um, to stand in for like the nation family, as in, well, we Hong Kongers in general are family, and so you can see similar discourse. In the U.S. as well,、um, and also to talk about family in more like a personal, everyday sense, like your biological family, often, or、um, your nuclear family. And so, what I am hoping to demonstrate in this book was that the way in which these migrants and immigrants were telling their familial story, in a sense, reflect back on the mainstream Hong Kongers to have them think about, oh, yes. Despite the differences, we ultimately are all here to think about the shared interest of our families, which also, of course, echo into who has access to the nation family. And so, my the concept of the deliberative empathy partly comes from that by telling, sharing, and bearing witness of, to these familial stories. What I am hoping that folks, the mainstream audiences, to gain is not a sense of just. Sympathy or pity, which is kind of the lower level. Think like say,、um, FX scholars like Spellman or Deborah Gould have talked about like kind of the different levels and layers of emotions and affect that either connect or disconnect or alienate the feelers from like the objects of affect, right? And so what? So then you have on one end you have like pity, sympathy, in which. The subject who is having those feelings is still occupying the superior moral or political position in which I, I can dole out pity to you. Right. But on、yeah. the far end, you have like empathy, which is like the buzzwords right now. It's like ah,、oh, how can we teach students like to be more empathetic, right? But there's also the issue in which、um, empathy. Can have different forms. So you have affective empathy, and this is from like research in、uh, applied psychology, in which you say that, "Oh, you're in pain. I feel your pain." And so, like Lee earlier, you were saying that, "Well, okay, so I still don't completely cannot say I completely grasp the constant anxiety that immigrants feel, right?" And so that is like a really good example of distinguishing different kinds of empathy. It's not the saying that, "Oh, I totally feel what you're feeling." And I assume that I know who you are, and so like say rhetoricians like Wendy Hesford or folks in gender and women's studies like Wendy Coso had talked about this as like、um, misrecognition. You think that you know who that other person is, and you think that you identify with them when you、yeah. don't、mm-hmm. actually.、Um, and so, what I really want this deliberative empathy concept to do is like there is a deliberative element in which you you like. Kind of take a pause for a second. Like, hold on a second. In what ways do I empathize? And I empathy does not just stop short as like at a personal level. I only empathize with this person that I see right in front of me because of their trauma. But I am going to be engaging in a deliberative process、uh, with the stories that I'm being presented and with my own feelings and to understand the social political causes of that person's story and trauma. 
And so the empathy doesn't come from a very easy misrecognition or misidentification, but rather come from a more layered and critical approach to figuring out um, what exactly is causing these feelings, what exactly is causing my connection and alienation from the storyteller. Yeah, that's a really good question. And and you made a comment about um, in the book, I I never know page numbers. I just highlight stuff. I think it's page. Well, it was about the, the, the women sort of like, the owners, the, the owners of these businesses and the way that they need to be able to connect with their domestic laborers, mm-hmm. right? The, the migrants and how the stories, right? Exactly what you said. Like you have to get them, first of all, to listen to the stories. There has to be a way to foster that, that engagement, but also mm-hmm. you have to strip away some of the cliches of like, oh, I totally get it now. <laughs> because that, that, that piece yeah. about like, yeah, I get it, but also I don't get it. And then not getting it is where I'm supposed to feel political responsibility is is a nice addition to some of the stuff on empathy that I usually read. Right. Yeah. So it's doesn't stop short at just, I feel something. And I think that what I'm hoping this concept to be able to do is to bridge the personal with the political aspect. And that's why I draw a lot on gender and women's studies, like Sarah Ahmed's idea of the affective economy was really helpful because what she's arguing is that, We have affective markers for certain racialized bodies and for certain stories. And those markers, they then circulate within mainstream discourse, within like dominant imaginaries. And the more they circulate, the more that they gain traction and valence. And so what are the ways in which we can disrupt that particular flow? Um, And so then what this idea is kind of conveying is also that what we are consuming, the the feelings that we have may seem very personal, but they're never quite just about us, but they're always, yeah. always like a mirror or a lens for us to kind of be able to understand what is going on in the larger uh, context. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of like coaching with entrepreneurs about how to tell a narrative and it's shocking how hard it is. And these are relatively privileged people, but even for even for the ones that have struggled to get where they are, who are people of color, it's still shockingly mm-hmm. hard to get a story out of them that isn't laden with what they think they're supposed to be saying. Yes. So even their own self-empathy and their own understanding of who they are and where they come from is very limited, not because they're stupid, but because they just speak in cliches. And then that trickles mm-hmm. upward when they try to express to other people their struggles. Yeah. And also then... In all the cases that in the book, again, so it, what I was illustrating is that these groups think that going to court or like the formal legally sanctioned route is the way to go. And so in a courtroom context, the kind of narratives you can tell is already confined. So for example, the migrant domestic workers, the lawyer had submitted in their case to say that. So a little bit backtrack, backtrack a little bit of context is that the migrant domestic workers in Hong Kong, there's so many of them. Uh, part of the reason why they're there, it's um, the global division of gendered labor. It's so that Hong Kong as an economy can free up their local women who are educated to participate in the productive economy. Mm-hmm. So care work, just kind of similar to what is going on in the U.S., Childcare usually it's relegated or like outsourced by folks who then you can pay less money. 
And so migrant workers, domestic workers, a lot of that is to fill that uh, economic gap or just also to perform like elderly care, all kinds of other chores. And the kind of unjust thing is that um, while white, white collar people and also just white people in Hong Kong, once they get work in Hong Kong and live in Hong Kong for seven consecutive years, they get to apply to become a permanent resident, which then would give them the ability to vote in like district elections. Um, but for migrant domestic workers, when they enter Hong Kong, they enter under a totally different immigration category. And so that means that for them, a lot of them, in fact, do, even after working in Hong Kong for like decades, they don't get that uh, permanent residency, which mm -hmm. means that they are not free to switch employers. They're always just stuck in that particular social rung because of the precariousness of the immigration status. And so this particular chapter, I then look at um, one uh, migrant domestic worker who's kind of like a class, essentially the effect would be like a class action suit, like if she won, all the other workers in a similar situation would benefit. And so her uh, lawyer has submitted the case in which this particular ordinance in the immigration law was unjust and also discriminate against uh, migrant workers. And so that, to us here, listening to this, like, that's a totally valid argument, because why are we distinguishing brown, mainly brown women from poorer countries with educated middle-upper-class white people by the way that we treat them in the immigration system? But that particular reasoning from the lawyer was immediately thrown out by the judge, saying that this is totally irrelevant. Um, what matters here is really just how this particular section of the law needs to be interpreted. Whether there's discrimination or not, it's not part of the purview of the case, right? And so if that is thrown out as irrelevant, that immediately limits the kind of narratives that is going to service in the courtroom. And so... If discrimination is considered irrelevant in this case, so then that means that there will not be any rhetorical space at all to even see these people as people with stories. Rather, the judge has already pulled in the perimeter to be like, all we're going to concern about is how to analyze this particular ordinance. And so then the question would be, if the legally sanctioned, the dominant space to debate whether you're a citizen or not, always already kind of preclude your personhood and lived experiences. First, the first question is like, do these experiences matter in this fight? If so, where and how is the most effective and ethical way to distribute this discourse and to invite engagement with them? Yeah, this, the stuff about the courts was really fascinating. I don't know if you've ever read any of, um, well, anyway, I'm sorry, I, I, I do so many book interviews that all I want to do is introduce people to new books, but let's keep the focus. Let's keep the focus. Yeah, outside of the courts, do you have maybe another example of where that, because the courts are like, they're not unique in the sense that, that, that all places in which I think, and you show this really well, minoritized subjects have the opportunity to tell stories they always have so many constraints and to expect them to be able to navigate them in a way that's going to make them legible mm -hmm. and under, and you know, it is it, really hilarious. And I think in the U S we, 
we have especially this perception that like everyone has an equal chance to tell their story, mm-hmm. which is not true. And the courts right. are one one place where I think you really see that. Is there another space in the book that you want to highlight in terms of where where the storytelling is constrained, maybe in a different way? Yeah. So the <laughs> the last chapter, um, which. Oh, I, yeah, I really, I really liked the last chapter a lot. <laughs> the last chapter, uh, if, like for those of you who don't want to read the whole book, chunks of it is available as an article in RSQ. Um, that last chapter looks at mainland Chinese maternal tourists. And so I'll kind of maybe veer off a little, give some more also context on how this is connecting to the ongoing protest that's happening right now. Yeah, that'd so be wonderful. Yeah, so what's happening with, back then was that um, Hong Kong and China is always in, exist in this tension in which because Hong Kong was a former British colony, has benefited a great deal in the 70s and 80s from that economic freedom of being able to participate in a capitalist society. So Hong Kong has... For a long time, um, this financial advantage and also cultural capital advantage uh, over China. So a lot of folks who um, want to have children in mainland China would think that, well, if I have give birth in Hong Kong because of birthright permanent residency, my kids would be able to take advantage of all those things that Hong Kong can offer. Um, for example, they can, they have a better public school system. So there's less corruption, uh, healthcare, and also just proximity to whiteness if you are located in Hong Kong. And so there was a wave of, um, in the, the early like 2010s or so, a wave of mainland mothers who would rush to the border to go in to give birth and that of course then generated industry and you hear similar things happening like say the border patrol in the u.s like cracking down on maternal houses in areas like la that are housing mainland chinese women a lot of the times to give birth um similar echoes with like anchor baby discourse but here i would like make a key difference is that First of all, even in the U.S., anchor baby doesn't really work that way because it's not like the baby has citizenship, then the mother or the parents immediately have it. So neither neither did that happen in Hong Kong. So that's actually not true, factually not true. But what was happening in that in that particular case was that these mothers, Chinese mothers, realized after giving birth in Hong Kong that, oh, crap, Hong Kong is really expensive. They may be able to afford coming over, staying, giving birth, the postpartum period. But in order to actually make a living there when they do not have the legal paper to work as a Hong Kong permanent resident is really hard. So then, but at the same time, they are demonized by mainstream Hong Kongers. They're being called locust because they were like, the Hong Kongers saying that, well, you know, you take up all our bad space, you take up our baby formula, your kids are taking up all the seeds in the public school. So again, similar echoes you can hear as the anti-immigrant narrative here in the U.S. And so these mainland mothers are trying really hard to tell the stories like, no, we are here not because we want to take your stuff, but we are escaping an oppressive system back in mainland China. And also we are still contributing and we're trying all we might to... Um, 
integrate into the society of Hong Kong. And so they have done ways in which um, they in, be, they were interviewed um, by a local public broadcasting network. They were some, some of the more educated mothers who are writing blog posts and op-eds that illustrate and trying to tell the stories to explain why their decision to give birth in Hong Kong is not to like take over the city, but it's like they're trying to make do. Like everybody's trying to make do. That's what they're trying to highlight. But then all of these backs, the stories end up backfiring in which Hong Kongers tick to like the Hong Kong version of Reddit called Lin Dang. And they lambasted this women and said that, continue to call them names, saying that, well, if you're so unhappy, just go back to China. And so that chapter for me was really hard to write because like, you see like, okay, folks are doing familial storytelling, but it took them nowhere. And so this particular chapter, I think is highlighting a huge limitation here is that that we sometimes assume that the dominant audiences are at this position of absolute privilege. Like they have the privilege to just dole out empathy or dole out whether you deserve me to like critically reflect on your situation or not. But this is highlighting is that Hong Kongers sometimes they perhaps, and perhaps you can also think about other rhetorical contexts. Like they don't really see themselves as having the luxury to even engage in deliberative empathy. So in the Hong Kong context, to even entertain the idea that mainland Chinese people can be a part of them could entail admitting to the fact that, oh, China and Hong Kong are essentially the same. And so there is that ideological stake here that despite the fact that these stories may generate deliberative and critical empathy, the, the risk is that in order to actually engage with that empathy, Hong Kongers will have to admit that, okay, fine, uh, China and Hong Kong is perhaps ideologically and politically more integrated than it is. And for that, for that is a hard pill to swallow because then it's like furthering Beijing's current agenda. Um, and so I think like what I was trying to illustrate there was that sometimes like we or have the tendency to see interlocutors as like either good guys or bad guys. Like one of you have the oppressed people and then you have the folks who are dominant and we need to convince the two sides to kind of reflect on how to engage in dialogues and deliberation with one another. But that particular binary view obscured the, the fact that a lot of the times all of these interlocutors were entrapped within a much broader political system with like more powerful stakeholders such as like nation states, right? Um, that they also are having a problem like navigating. And so we then, what, what ultimately this is calling for is that we need like an intersectional network analysis of power rather than simplifying to say that Oh, there are only two parties involved. Yeah, and I think I think it's really one thing I just want to highlight in the book. One of the values that this book has over so the reason the concept of deliberative empathy I think is in some ways a lot more valuable than other concepts is because it thinks about victimage as sort of a rhetorical position mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we and you and you cite some research that I've also read that had to do with um, with like the Palestine. 
Israel conflict because uh-huh. you think you get two people down and you, you you have them tell each other stories and then they and then they understand each other, but one would have to understand that they're in the power position and one would have to understand mm-hmm. right, that they have the responsibility. And like in the case you just gave us, the people we think of as the power position are also marginalized in other contexts. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, same thing we see, I think, in the U.S. with like race and class. Yes. White poor people have a hard time yes. extending empathy to people of color because they don't consider themselves to have privilege. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. not, and again, not not to turn everything into like the America example. I just, it made me think about it. So there are parallels in those two contexts, I think. Right. But once we then are trying to like untangle some of this tension, mm-hmm. it became so much harder to even analyze and to make an argument. Right. Right? Yeah, I imagine, yes. <laughs> like how do you even, so like when I was writing that last chapter, Part of me was like, okay, the two body pair chapters all have this like turn. It's like, oh, the the marginalized people resort to this dominant rhetorical platform that did not end up giving them inclusion nor formal citizenship. But then they turn and by engaging in an alternative rhetorical engagement, they got somewhere. But this last chapter was hard because like, wait a minute, they never got anywhere. Um, in fact, they did get somewhere through the legal means, partly because um, the mainland Chinese government decided to step in and interpret the basic law for Hong Kongers. And so that the tension there was like this, the situation is flipped in which... Um, those who are more privileged, supposedly the Hong Kongers, in part of this histories of the story became the more oppressed ones because the gov- Hong Kong, the mainland government really wanted uh, mainland Chinese people to gain easier access to Hong Kong's permanent residency. And so a little bit of background is that even though the Hong Kong court ruled that a particular group of mainland Chinese people will not qualify Beijing stepped in and said, hold on a second, I know that Hong Kong court is supposed to be independent, but in this case, we think the judge have interpreted the basic law, which is kind of like Hong Kong's like, constitution. We think that the, the judge has interpreted it just uh, incorrectly, and so we are going to enlighten you by telling you how you should have ruled in this case. And so, of course, that uh, opened like a can of worms about whether Hong Kong would still have uh, legal autonomy. And so in this particular case, Hong Kongers were the ones who ultimately, who actually have more to lose because then it is setting a precedent that, oh, Beijing can come in and interpret who is a citizen, who is not a citizen based on their political interest. And they do have the significant political power to do that. So that's kind of highlighting the fact that like sometimes we be as rhetorical analysts, rhetorical theorists, we um, want to have a theory that we want to demonstrate. And then you have this like litmus test or this particular case. Then you're like, ah, nothing doesn't quite fit. And so when I was writing the chapter, I was like, oh, should I just like try to find something else to make it fit? <laughs> or just to say that, you know what, this is a limitation. A limitation that at the same time is also an opening to remind us that we are all to see of all these interlocutors as actors 
But none of them had all the agency because ultimately what is illustrating was that the one of maybe perhaps their shared, their commonplace is that they are both under the whims of the state power that ultimately holds the most control over everybody's experiences and social status. And so I think it's like ultimately like maybe closing on that particular chapter was like a hard pill to swallow, but I think it's making a very difficult and complex call for us to avoid the binary. Well, but, and I think one of the things that you, you start to touch on though, I mean, this is why I like this chapter so much. And I, and I didn't know that that's so cool. Cause if you had asked me, I would have thought this fit in great with everything else. So it's very cool to, it's very cool to, for, to, for you to be like, yeah, I didn't know what to do with it. It's fun. Um, but I, I had another interview um, last week uh, about a book that it'll be coming out soon mm-hmm. about um, the, the ways that graduate students and contingent faculty and other sort of precarious academic laborers, the way that the system keeps them from uniting to mm-hmm. invoke change. And one of the things that we talked about in the interview was that sort of like helping everyone understand that they're all oppressed under the system is one of the ways you can kind of overcome some of these perceived competition, right? Because like Mm -hmm. contingent faculty feel like they're competing with graduate students who feel like they're competing with student athletes all for the same limited set of resources. And so in Hong Kong, you sort of demonstrate something similar that these migrant workers and even even the privileged classes of Hong Kong still don't necessarily see themselves as someone who's in a position to give the generous, the benefit of the doubt, right? But they're all oppressed under, in some way, some of the state requirements, mm-hmm. some of the state discourses. And so that might be a pivot place in addition to the deliberative empathy for them to all understand that the system sort of hurts each one of them and that maybe that's where the coalition building could come in. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, yes, this is one of the hard parts about being a rhetorician is everyone wants to be like, well, now what do we do? And you're like, I don't know. I'm a discourse person. I don't strategize political action, but I do see like a really good intervention here for thinking about how do you build maybe some coalitions if people could get there? Yeah. Yeah, so um, so this is a key point that was highlighted in the chapter about the domestic workers, right? Because we would think that like right. oh, mm-hmm. people who can afford live in health, they probably are, like really rich, but that's actually not the case. Uh, a lot of them, because of the bar for uh, the legal requirement for folks to have a live in domestic worker is quite low, the income bar, and a lot of the times these are not even like middle class families. Some of them are like, working class families. And the reason why they are hiring a migrant workers is so that both parents and can go to work. And also it's cheaper to have someone to stay at home and take care of the kids and cook and take care of the grandparents than to pay private childcare. And so a lot of these people are like also not really benefiting from the system. Um, and they also are, they're kind of needing, they need to oppress and exploit their domestic workers so that they themselves can be exploited somewhat less. And so it's a really perverted labor system. Um, but of course, like when we keep on going, like this have been going like this for decades, if there's no point of rupture, no one is going to necessarily want to uh, stir things up. Uh, so I think this is a good point to connect to what is going on with the protest right now. So that with the Hong Kong pro-democracy protest, even though it's on the most service level, it's about um, preventing China from passing this extradition law that will allow the Chinese government to take whoever 
they deem to have committed a crime uh, from Hong Kong. So that could even include, say, foreign nationals. Like if there's an American journalist who had said some stuff against China and China deemed that person to be have committed a crime, they can extradite this person from Hong Kong. And so like this protest on the surface is only about overthrowing this bill. But in fact, it's also a lot about in what ways can people, Hong Kong people come together to challenge the injustices that China embodies. And then what you're seeing is that there are more and more activists who are talking about, oh, wait, hold on a second. Maybe we should also make use of this opportunity to talk about the housing crisis. Maybe we should also make use of this opportunity to talk about labor justice. And so during this protest, a lot of migrant workers, including a lot of them from the Philippines, if their uh, employers allow them, they go on the street and protest alongside Hong Kongers. And they say, say, say things like, oh, I wish folks back in the Philippines would see that because the Duterte regime there is also really oppressive. And so you're also seeing South Asian people who were marginalized despite having to be living in the city for so long. They also participate in saying, that, well, you know what? I'm participating because Hong Kong is my home. And because going on the street carries so much risk right now. Uh, a lot of people who get arrested would be charged with rioting, and that comes with a minimum sentence of 10 years. So for mainstream Hong Kongers to see that Southeast Asian people, South Asian people are willing to put themselves on the line was a big point for them to recognize that, oh, right, we're in this together and that we are both sharing these challenges because we're all both entrapped within this particular network of power. Um, and also during the pandemic, there have been more discussion about how migrant domestic workers are being exploited even more harshly because folks are like, well, I, the government's saying things like uh, domestic workers should just stay at home and not go out together with their friends on the weekend. But then the question is like, well, domestic workers don't really have a home because their home is their workplace. And because right now with the pro-democracy protests, this, the sense of civil society and coalitions has become so much more amplified. There have been more public support for migrant right, for labor right, in ways that previously mm -hmm. when I was writing the book, that was not really there. Yeah, I was talking to a, actually a lawyer recently and they were like, this is the time. This is the time to strike because they, we've we've proven that we can all just band together and do something because, you know, everyone has just like totally put their lives on hold to get through this. And they were like, we're, power is scared shitless right now. Uh -huh. and I was like, I hope I was like, I hope you're right. Right. I hope that like <laughs> I hope that people see what can happen when just like we decide to bring the economy to a grinding halt as right. a collect as a collective. But for that to work, you have to have a united common interest. And everyone thinks that the pandemic is just like some kind of lightning strike, but it's rhetorical, just like everything else. And so you just yeah. need the same amount of commitment to workers' rights, let's say, uh -huh. as you do to the pandemic as a global crisis, and you could have the same amount of impact. So I think it's really exciting what's going on with the Hong Kong protests. I mean, I, I wish that we had time. Have you thought about writing? Um, is that something that interests you to sort of keep going with that in the current moment? Because this book obviously came out before you even knew any of this stuff was going to happen. Oh, right. Um... 
I haven't decided. So I've since writing this book, I pivoted to working on reproductive justice in particular. Oh, that's right. I saw that on your website. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So in particular, um, on the way that birth doulas are practicing advocacy to combat maternal, the racial disparities in maternal mortality in the U.S. And then Hong Kong happened. And, and so I've written one article that's still under review on that, uh, but mostly I've been channeling that part of my writing to writing op-eds regularly for the Hong Kong Free Press. Um, and a part of me, I, I don't know. I, I oh, what a great writing. idea. <laughs> so I'm doing more public writing that I still kind of, you know, of course, using my like rhetorician brain. Um, but the hard things when, when this book came out was, is when Hong Kong, the protest was like, really on fire on literal fire sometimes that I was feeling like oh I don't want this book to end up getting more press because of some really horrifying and terrible things that is happening there so it's really torn about when you're a researcher of your own hometown and you like there's that tension of like am I benefiting from this turmoil in what ways can I be doing something that have more direct, straightforward impact and positive impact to the movement rather than perhaps writing another rhetorical theory book that's not going to come out for maybe like two years. I think like that's just like always in the back of the head, I think for folks who are like wanting to do, have more of a public impact with their work. Yeah, I've been trying to get into op-ed writing too. It's very hard. I'm impressed that you're able to do that because I have found that I'm like too formal um, uh-huh. for op-eds. Yeah, I'm working and on it though. So that's, that's, but that's awesome because bridging that gap is so important. It's something we really need to do. And most academics just find it too tedious um, for, for good reason in some cases. And so it's really awesome that you're doing that, especially over in Hong Kong. Um, you cut out for a second. Can you repeat what you just oh, said? Yeah, I was just saying that's really important work. I'm glad that I'm glad that you're doing that. Oh, yes. Yeah, that public thought leadership is really valuable. Well, so getting us back to the book, is there another case study you want to touch on? Or because um, there, there's obviously like a lot of things we haven't talked about yet. Do you want to bring um, up another context or another example? Um, maybe, one thing we haven't talked about, too, are, are the sort of the examples of the family narratives and where those work. Yeah, so one thing that I kind of want to highlight is that in, so even though Hong Kong have this really contentious relationship with mainland China, I want to kind of clarify that the contention is not with Chinese culture. The contention is just with the ruling of the Chinese Communist Party, particularly the current Xi Jinping administration. And so in many ways, Hong Kongers do still kind of subscribe to or socialized with classical like Chinese culture. So the family comes partly from that in which there, I think I mentioned it in the book, um, there in Hong Kong, in, in like Chinese culture, there isn't really the sense of like community as in like neighborhood community. Instead, there's a saying that you first clean up your own act, like your personal individual act, you then create order in your family and then you take care of your country and then you can create peace in the whole world. And so you have individual, family, country, world. There is not even like the intermediary of like, how about among families, the community. And so family is always the unit um, of analysis, also the unit of circle of concern. 
is that, and especially in the Hong Kong context, why the family matters so much that it could become a commonplace to connect folks from across cultural difference is that as a former colony, during as a colony, so then folks are like, well, we cannot necessarily just completely rely on the colonial government to look out for us. And later on, it was also really instilled in Hong Kongers the neoliberal mentality that you have to be very self-enterprising in order to succeed, and even more so after Hong Kong has been returned to China. So, well, you definitely cannot rely on the Chinese Hong Kong government, so you better make sure that you work really hard and be really smart about it so that you and your family members can be okay. And so within that network, then you can see how difficult it is can you can be to argue that, hey, hold on a second, how about those other people? You should care about them too. But we have when you have been historically socialized, you only make sure that you and your immediate familial pot is okay. To make that argument is hard. And so what the, my emphasis on the familial storytelling is that, okay, so how about we figure out a way rhetorically to make people expand their circle of families so that they see other people who are not within their biological nuclear family as also family members. Um, and one way to do it is to also highlight that different familial units across difference are facing similar struggles. For example, like the ones we're talking about, these families are also, for example, in Southeast Asian countries, the domestic workers. They also have kids. They also have like their own neighborhoods. And they're all sim- facing similar kind of tough decisions in the way that the local Hong Kong families are facing. And so familial storytelling then becomes this connector and also in a way that kind of almost like sneakily um, squeak in, squeeze in this idea that, hey, audience members, maybe we can also think about does only the people who live in your apartment count as your family members or uh, more people can join into your circle of concern and so that gradually the inclusivity bubble can grow? Yeah, no. And I think the idea of sort of the inclusivity is like a just sort of a, of a bubble that you just kind of slowly expand mm-hmm. through some of these activities that are and aren't working in Hong Kong is, is a nice visual metaphor to think about. It's mm-hmm. right. Like you said, it's not the binary. We're not going to see an overnight transformation. Right. These are you called it a praxis earlier, right? This is mm-hmm. a praxis that you have to kind of keep at and keep doing day in, day out. And you'll start to see that the, the margins sort of shift a little. Yeah, bit. yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I really enjoyed this book and you're, you're almost, it's almost as fun. You're even more fun to talk to in person about the book than it was to read. And I appreciate, I also appreciate your, your presentation of context, because obviously this is a book about um, things that I do not have day-to-day experience with. And I don't always have a lot of cultural context. And so I really appreciated the time you took to spell some of these um, conflicts out with mainland China, Mm -hmm. things that you kind of, you sort of know about as a person who just like reads the news, but you don't really understand all of the layers of complexity. And I'm sure even this book is only a piece of the puzzle, Mm -hmm. but still very Mm -hmm. appreciative. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want to add, is there anything else about the book or um, what you, what you wrote about or any specific case studies that you want to chat about before we wrap? Um, No, I think I'm good. I would just really point folks to, um, maybe perhaps read a little bit more about what is happening in Hong Kong right now. And I think that I've, I've heard some of my friends have taught this book in a graduate course. And a lot of the times the, the students were kind of echoing what Lee just said. It's like, oh, 
I know some stuff about this Hong Kong China conflict, but this is giving like a fuller picture of what's going on. Um, and I would say that in addition to kind of offering this a plug because I am from there, <laughs> it's also that I think this particular geopolitical tension offers re- a really uh, ripe site for us as rhetorical theorists and just scholars who are interested in political communication and cultural studies to figure out how are different stakeholders, for example, what kind of narrative are they crafting based on the exact same event? For those of us who are interested in studying social movement, uh, right now, Hong Kongers are deploying a lot of different advocacy tactics. Like they have mm-hmm. collective singing in malls as a protest strategy, mm-hmm. uh, or like cookie baking <laughs> as a protest strategy. And so those would be like really interesting um, way, things, uh, cases to study. And I actually put together a life binder of um, essays that kind of give people an overview of what's going on that I could oh, share. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I can put the link in the show notes. So anyone who's listening to this interview, all you got to do is open the show notes on the web or the app and you'll see a link to that archive. Yeah, and one thing I did want to point out too that I think is really cool with what you're doing is, um, you know, I read, I think yesterday it was that they're starting to impose different different sentences on the anti-government protests over in Hong Kong. Uh And uh, people say, oh, well, they're just just obeying the law, right? Obviously not the protesters, but the people in support of the government. And I find it so interesting to look on the one hand at the protests in the Midwest of mostly white Mm -hmm. men not Mm -hmm. wearing masks. Yes. who are able to protest, you know, quite unpeacefully without <laughs> fear, without fear of government retribution, even though technically they're breaking the public assembly law. Right. But, but right, right. Um, we're, we're really being careful about like, how do we handle that? Meanwhile, you have these Hong Kong protesters wearing masks, uh-huh. uh, peacefully demonstrating, in my opinion, yeah, yeah, they're a large crowd, but they're peaceful right. and being thrown in jail for a up to five year sentence. And, and right. they've all come out with statements that like, you can increase the sentences. We're not going to stop. Yes, exactly. It's really, I mean, it's, it's sad. It's also very empowering. And I think, um, I think that juxtaposition, if people haven't thought about it, I mean, it really speaks to the crackdown. I mean, I think on my view, like the disproportionate crackdown on these protesters over there and everybody can form their own opinion, but you know, I I don't think the U S in part because of race, right. We're not as attenuated to the fact that like Hong Kong and China are not the same thing. Uh-huh. And yeah, you can yeah. you can call it all the Asians, but in this case, that would be really, I think, doing people a disservice to not understand how different those those groups are, and even with, within those groups. Yes, and I think yeah. uh, last plug for that would be you. Sometimes we hear Hong Kong popped up from time to time, like in the mouth of Trump or Pompeo, or like even Ted Cruz and sure. Republican mm-hmm. um, Senator Junior Senator uh, Josh Hawley like, visited Hong mm-hmm. Kong. A lot of the times, like, this is also, I think, a key case study for those of us who are interested in, like, looking at uh, right-wing political discourse of how these politicians are mobilizing this current conflict uh, to argue for the Republican stronghold in U.S. politics. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, Mm -hmm. you can hear, like, also, like, you know, if you're studying ideograph, similar context of, like, oh... Republican politicians using freedom, empowerment, rights to talk about the Hong Kong context. So mm-hmm. it sounds very progressive, but at the same time, what exactly is like that political tension, ideological tension that's going on in there? Well, yeah, and it comes back to that point you're, you're, you're making throughout the book, which is like all of these, you, neoliberalism has to be taken into account whenever you, because 
because it's always, it pervades the discourse. So even mm-hmm. though the discourse looks empowering, there's always going to be perhaps some kind of way in which it serves dominant ideologies and capitalist markets. Yes, yes yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, it's a wonderful book. So is there anything else you want to say or leave the audience with before I just kind of wrap up and remind them about where they can get the book? Oh, you can start wrapping up. Okay, great. Well, I just want to thank again, um, Shu Yin, Sharon Yam for being here today. It was a wonderful conversation. The book we were discussing is Inconvenient Strangers, Transnational Subjects and the Politics of Citizenship, available from the Ohio State University Press, published in 2019. And great news, the Ohio State University Press is actually offering all of uh, many of its books, including Inconvenient Strangers, for free if your university has the Ohio State University Press database. So the easiest thing to do is go into Google Scholar, type in Inconvenient Strangers, Ohio State University. And you know if you see the PDF pop up, great. If not, you can contact your library to ask. But also for all my public readers who maybe are not part of a university system, get a, get a copy of the book. Even if not for yourself, you can donate it to the local library. You can also ask the local library to purchase one. Although these days asking uh, public <laughs> libraries to, to spend money is maybe not the best solution, but buying a copy of the book, reading it, enjoying it, and then perhaps donating it so that other people can get their hands on this valuable work is a wonderful way to help support university presses, help support the lo- local library system, because really without them, um, work like Sharon's would not make it into the public to the same degree of quality that it currently does. And other than that, I'll, I'll put a link to your website in the show notes, Sharon, as well as the archive you put together. Mm-hmm. Is there anywhere else that people can follow or contact you or learn more about your work? Yeah. So um, if you Google my name together with uh, Hong Kong Free Press, you would Hong be Kong able Free to, Press. Okay. Yes, you'll be able to see the columns that I've been writing per, right now, predominantly reflecting on the way the pandemics is highlighting the different kinds of injustices. Um, and on Twitter, I am at Sharon Yamsey. So Sharon, Y-A-M-S-Y. Um, if you are interested in things outside of work, uh, I also am on Instagram. So in my Instagram stories, I often will share the books that I'm reading and also news on Hong Kong. But oh, nice. my feed is just food and dogs. <laughs> um, so on Instagram, I am at yams and chips, Y-A-M-S and chips, C-H-I-P-S, which is my one of my dogs. Oh, I love that. It's also funny because it's like fish and chips. How cute. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Love the social media game. All right. Well, Sharon, again, this is a fabulous interview. I'm so excited to get the book out. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thank you everyone at home for listening. I hope you have um, a lovely, what looks like is about to be summer. So take a walk, listen to the interviews, and we'll see you again on the New Books Network soon. 